In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, please be seated. I want to introduce uh, today with, uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce, actually a dream come true. I, uh, in 1996, I first tried to get this man to come to a church where I was ministering. We finally succeeded. The Reverend Dr. Jeremy Bigby uh, teaches at Cambridge University in both the theology department and the music department. He's not only a theologian, but a concert pianist. He's been with us yesterday. We had a marvelous day as he led us deeply into the gospel through his uh, artistry and his music. And uh, he's our, uh, he also teaches at Duke University and is the head of their initiatives on theology and the arts. We're so pleased to have Dr. Bigby with us uh, this weekend. Uh, uh, please uh, uh, give him your attention. As we're seated, let us pray. Lord God, take these feeble words and make them strong. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you so much for your warm and your generous welcome, everyone at the cathedral. I've had a wonderful weekend. This is my first visit to Albany. I hope it won't be my last. I'd love to see you all again sometime. Thank you, Dean Leander, uh, for all the thoughtfulness that you put into this weekend, this visit. Thank you to, to the choir. I hope you never take this choir for granted. They haven't told me to say this, but I'm going to say it anyhow. Um, they're fabulous singers, and they've got a kind of focus and intensity that's incredibly important at Lent. Thank you for the time that you put in to singing. And focus, indeed, is the theme of this sermon. My thoughts before a big race are usually pretty simple. I tell myself, get out of the blocks, channel your energy, and focus. Those are words of the legendary runner Carl Lewis. Get out of the blocks, channel your energy, focus. He once wrote about that famous day in the Seoul Olympics when he lost his focus. It was just before the 100 meters final, and he was shaking hands with the other competitors. And he noticed the eyes of one of them were yellow, a sure sign of steroids, the eyes of Ben Johnson. Lewis writes, from that moment on, I couldn't stop thinking about those yellow eyes. My focus drifted. So when the crowd hushed, and the air grew still, and the gun fired, and they bolted from the blocks, he couldn't get those yellow eyes out of his mind. He said he was neither in the race nor out of it. Distracted, he lost his focus and the race. And I suppose if we're honest, we'd have to say most of us live pretty distracted, unfocused lives. You know that old cartoon of two couples dancing cheek to cheek? The man in one couple gazes dreamily over the soldier, soldier, shoulder of his partner at the woman in the other man's arms, and she gazes back. Each is half committed somewhere else. Or think of the 13-year-old in the math class 
staring out of the window, dreaming of distant lands where there are no equations, cosines or sines. Think of the newlywed couple who can never really enjoy their new home because their eyes are always on the house round the corner with five rather than four bedrooms and a larger patio. Distracted people, unfocused people, like us, I suppose. Like Carl Lewis, we're neither in the race nor out of it. Take just one day in our lives and think of the number of empty and worthless distractions we give in to lazily. And I don't mean reading a novel or watching a favorite basketball team like Duke. These things are indispensable to our salvation. Of course they are. No, I'm talking about the habits that drain our energy and get us nowhere. Time-consuming relationships that help no one. Committees convened in order to have a committee. Bits of us are sucked into things which look attractive but turn out to be irrelevant. So the color begins to go out of life because we're never really doing anything full-bloodedly. We're always half somewhere else. As my wife often tells me at the kitchen table, you're here, Jeremy, but not here. The lights are on, but no one's at home. Neither here nor there, half here, half there, half committed somewhere else. And that surely is where much of our culture is also. Our phones, our devices, screens, they provide continuous distraction, an endless stream of attractions, pulling us this way and that. Watch this, watch that, buy this, buy that. So we get scatterbrained. Our brains are scattered, pulled in every direction. Fatal distraction. The Philippian church in our lesson is on the edge of fatal distraction. There's distraction on the inside and distraction on the outside. On the inside, there's Jewish unrest. It seems some of the Jews in the congregation have a kind of superiority complex. They have the law and they know how to keep it. And others are getting attracted by the old Judaism they left behind. So there's distraction on the inside. There's also distraction on the outside. They're refusing to worship the emperor, and the Romans are noticing. The heat is on. Some are getting singed, and they are slipping from their faith, losing their focus. Fatal distraction. And so, to this distractible, unfocused bunch of Philippian Christians comes a little letter from Paul the Apostle, the letter to the Philippians an antidote to distraction, if ever there were one. And as he begins to wind up the letter, the language gets more and more focused, pared down. Everything gets focused on one shining center. But one thing, he says. Paul's passion is for one thing. Not a thousand things pulling in different directions, but one thing pulling in one direction. One thing matters above all. Ignoring what lies behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on to the finishing line to win the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. And that's what Lent is actually about in the end. It's about focus. 
It's about ridding ourselves of distractions. Well, what is this one thing? Let's take it in two stages. First of all, he's saying there's a goal to be grasped. I press on toward the finishing line to win the prize for which God has called me. What is the goal? The prize. Nothing less than to know Jesus Christ finally, fully, and eternally. To enjoy life with him forever, never-ending life. Life with a capital L, fullness of life. It means being freed, finally, from everything which wrecks your life. And it means being freed for everything God wants you to be. A kind of life which doesn't shrink and contract and run down and die, but which expands and expands. It means a feast, like the wildest beach party. A feast where the dead live again and sing and laugh, where the food never runs out and the wine never runs dry. That's what Paul means by the resurrection of the dead. Real life, new life beyond death. That's the prize, the goal to be grasped. But we're not there yet fully. We can know that in part, but we're not there fully. So he says, I don't consider myself yet to have made that my own. The final embrace is still to come. And that's why he's so worried about distractions now. That's why he says, ignoring what lies behind. The word doesn't really mean forget, it means disregard, don't get distracted. What lies behind that might distract us? Well, there's the easier life of the past, for a start. In Philippi, some are telling us we should get back to the good old days and the good old ways of Judaism, with law observance and guaranteed legal protection from the Romans. You may not have been a Christian all your life, or a churchgoer all your life. Perhaps you weren't brought up in the church. Like me, perhaps, you came to faith later in life. And maybe there are days when you hanker after the old days, the days when you didn't have to go to church, when you could have a bit more to drink, when you could be rude to other drivers on the road, without worrying about it. But Paul would be saying, if you're running in the stadium, you won't be thinking about all the nice things you could eat before you took up running. You remind yourself you're heading for a goal, far richer than anything you've left behind. Focus, press on. The goal beckons, Christ beckons. Another distraction, our achievements. Paul knows all about this one too, the temptation to become fixated on what a good Christian he is. And we might well be tempted to do the same. All the good things I've done for the church, all the meetings I've been to, the committees I've served on, the practical jobs I've done, the services I've been to, the sermons I've endured. Just think of the number of them. Now, of course, thank God for what he's made possible through you. But when you're in the race, you don't keep looking back to congratulate yourself on the distance you've covered. Press on. Let God take care of your achievements. Press on. The goal beckons. Christ beckons. And with that goal in the center, 
knowing Christ forever, we'll begin to find out what the poet T.S. Eliot called a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. If you think about what makes a great saint, a saint with a capital S, the characteristic that marks them all is that their whole lives cohere around a center. Everything in their lives seems to make sense. They're not distracted people. And I think music gives us the best way of thinking about this. Many of you will know the famous piece by the English composer Elgar called the Enigma Variations. Elgar tells us that the enigma or mystery of this music is that the whole piece can be played alongside a well-known melody, a popular tune we all know. But he doesn't tell us what the melody is. And the melody isn't played in the music, you never hear it. It's there between the notes. And no one has yet found it. There have been lots of suggestions as to what it is. The Star Spangled Banner, someone thought. Pop Goes the Weasel. No, none of them really work. But if only we could find it and discover that hidden melody, the rest of the music would come alive in an even fresher way. For us, the enigma has been made known. The mystery at the heart of all things, Jesus Christ. We've been made for a goal, life with him. When we tune into him and reach ahead for him with every ounce of our being, the strands of our lives will resonate, come alive. I came to faith when I was about 19. And up until that time, I was obsessed with and fixated on music of all sorts. When I became a Christian, a lot of people said to me, oh, that's a pity, you're going to have to give up a whole lot of music, and life will become much duller. It will shrink. Your, color, your life will turn from being colored to black and white. I found exactly the opposite. I enjoy music far more now because I haven't put it in the center. With Christ in the center, everything else will come alive in a new way. Music is far more fascinating to me now than it was before. I can hear so much more. And yet, there's something else here, surely. I've made all this sound like nothing but a great deal of hard work on our part, in our own power. And that's not the way Paul sees it. I press on, he says, to make it my own, this goal, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. There's a goal to be grasped, yes. The second part is, we've been grasped for the goal. And Paul knows this on the Damascus Road when Jesus got hold of him and spun his life around what he calls here the heavenward call or the heavenly call, Christ grasping him. You and I are here this morning, not just because we've been captivated by a goal, but because we've been captured for the goal. In the last resort, it's not our yearning for the finishing line that counts but Christ yearning for us. Not our grasp of him, 
but his much stronger grasp of us. Remember that. Remember that, says Paul, especially on those days when distraction comes and you lose your vision and the focus drifts. Remember that when you were baptized as a baby, your tiny hand could only grasp a single finger. But then he grasped the whole of you and claimed you as his own. Remember all the times when we felt that grasp. Who was it who coaxed you back to faith after all those turbulent years of rebellion? Might have been in your case. Who was it who gave you words with a dying friend when you were so scared of saying the wrong thing? Who was it when you were on the brink of disaster? Who was it who sent along a friend to jerk you back from the cliff edge? And when you were tripped up from behind, when you were stabbed in the back by those smarter than you, those with a better education, those with smooth words and devious plans, when you stumbled and started to fall, who clutched hold of you and made you believe you were worth something, that you had a place in the heart of God? And when you did collapse, your face was in the dust, when you ached with a sense of failure, when the scheme crashed, when the marriage broke up, the job fell through. Who was it who sent along the right person at the right time to lift your head up again? The invisible grasp of Jesus Christ. And if there are days when the vision is still blurring, let's remember that the one who grasps you has already run our race. He came to this world and set his eye on the goal out of love for his father. Every distraction resisted, no deflections, no diversions, never off course, on he went. He was tricked and beaten down from behind. He was thrown to his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he strained forward, straight forward, not my will but yours, and he pressed on to Calvary for the joy set before him. His face was pressed into the dust, deep down into the dust of death, but he was lifted up, raised from the dead to be crowned with an imperishable wreath, the prize that never fades. This is what God has done for us. He has provided one who has run this race, God himself in Jesus Christ. And this is the Jesus who grasps us today, this morning, through bread and wine. And the grasp we know today is only a foretaste of the final embrace when all distractions will fall away, when the dust will turn to glory, and when we'll, when we'll run with Christ into the crowds and with them go on running and running and running into eternity without tiring. And then we'll know for sure there was a goal to be grasped, and we were grasped for the goal. Amen.